Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Way Too Proud of Texas Guy. Mr. Way Too Proud of Texas Guy. Men from lesser states may know their state's capital, but you, you know your state's bird, tree, and even reptile. Love that horny toad. You display your pride with your Lone Star tattoo, native Texan bumper sticker, and contempt for any state that doesn't start with Tex and end with Is. That spells Texas. Sure, there are 49 other states in the union, but they're smaller, wussier. And the people talk funny. So crack open a nice cold Bud Lighto, lover of the Lone Star State, because all that flag waving must have made you mighty thirsty. Bud Light beer at Isaac Bush, Houston, Texas. Both hands, right side. Oi, 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 To left side. I should pants last night. I shit my pants last night. Oh, I did. I shit my pants last night. I shit my pants last night. Oh, I did. Fucking shit my pants. I had a great meal. Just a great fucking meal. I had to go to the bathroom so bad. Fucking shit my pants. I had a great meal. Just a great fucking meal. I had to go to the bathroom so bad. Fucking shit, fucking shit in my pants. When was the last time you shit your pants? Yeah. Been a while? I'm good twice a year for that. I was in Vegas a couple years ago. Staying at the Bellagio. I went over to the Mirage for dinner. I met some friends of mine. We went to Kokomo's. The guy brings out some fresh crab legs. I'm eating them. Then we gamble. I'm walking back to the hotel, and all of a sudden I yell, "Oh fuck!" And I'm standing here like this. I got my butt pinched so fucked. I'm I'm fucked. I can't move. And I'm standing here like this. I got my butt pinched so fucked. I'm I'm fucked. I can't move. And I'm standing here like this. I got my butt pinched so fucked. I'm I'm fucked. I can't move. All of a sudden, you know, Delta right. I went just like this. Water. I had uh, some food poisoning from the crabs. And I'm just standing there, and it's just running down. It's running down. It's running. It's running. It's running. It's running. It's running. It's running. And uh, I just start fucking walking. Every time I'm walking, something's coming out of it.
True story. Who's the pitchers in this game? He's George Brett, the uh, Royals Hall of Famer. George, how are you, bud? <laughs> Doing good when you were comparing me to Steve Garvey. I got a funny story for you. One time we were playing on a national Saturday game of the week with Joe Garagiola and Tony Kubek, mm -hmm. and evidently my dad was a little upset with me because I didn't, and my hair was a little long. You know, back then you could only watch your son play or on Saturdays. They didn't have every game on TV. And uh, since my father was living in Los Angeles, he was watching the game, and I got a call after the game. And uh, not only was he critical of my hair, how long it was, but I hadn't shaved in a couple days, and he said I should be more like Steve Garvey. universe what is up once again back is the incredible the pod animal jake the snake robinson from the paul base let's talk baseball podcast network i'm coming out of paulie's island south kagalaki half man half podcast machine back in the captain kirk chair shields down photons up Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, baseball universe? What's juicy? Welcome back to my baseball dojo, where I like to take these deep, weekly historical and biographical dives into the history of the great American pastime. My number one goal as the creator of this endeavor has always been, and always will be, to spread the gospel of baseball around the world. And I tell you that all the time, every week, right? Well, here's the why, and I, I've never really told you guys the why, I don't think. It's very simple. Baseball has been a constant in my life. I, I was an awkward kid, uh, an interracial mulatto in the 70s. I mean, nowadays, it's not really a big deal for most people when they see a mixed-race kid. You know, it's, it's almost become trendy to have, you know, a mulatto 
uh, who matches the couch. When I was a kid, let's just say that wasn't the case, especially in the environment I was growing up in. Um, you know, not until I could get the fuck out. I, I moved out when I was 16 years old. I lived in a poor town in the shadows of a really nice middle class community. We were so poor. We didn't even have running water or water and sewage in our house. I didn't have a tub until around 1985, I want to say. Now, look, many people in this world have lived much tougher lives than me, for sure. I'm just giving you a glimpse. When I was five, I discovered baseball. I would spend the summer with my grandmother in West Baltimore, and I loved it. They had a toilet and a tub, and this was my escape from my brutal home life. I would cry like no tomorrow at the end of the summer when I had to go home. And the Robinsons are a huge family. I have 10 aunts and uncles. They had about 30 kids among them, my cousins, and the cousins, including me. Uh, we have about 30 kids, maybe more. The Baltimore Robinsons are, are a massive unit. If you, you, you could get us all in one place at the same time. My dear Aunt Celeste, she's gone now. She took me to my very first game. And I've told this story many times. Reggie Jackson was on the Orioles. I sat in right field. And he made me feel like the only kid in the stadium that day. It was Reggie who first hooked me into this obsession that I still have all these years later. My Uncle David and my Dodger-loving grandfather turned me onto the game even more in the summer of 77. I remember... Clear as crystal, watching the 1977 World Series with my uncle and grandfather as Reggie Jackson is single-handedly destroying the Dodgers with his three blasts in Game 6. And I felt bad for my grandfather, but I loved Reggie. I kept very quiet so as not to upset my grandfather, even though I knew... Uh, even then, I knew not to uh, show the other guy up. My Uncle David turned me on to baseball cards. I was never the same after that. My obsession was taken to like this whole other level. And I studied the numbers like um, Neil deGrasse Tyson studying astrophysics. And honestly, I got lost in it. I was a lazy student, socially awkward, no self-esteem, horrific home life. And even when I developed from my cocoon and evolved and fell in love, had a kid... The game was still there. And when I lost everything, including my dignity, the game was still there, always bringing me solace. And whoever your higher power is, they bestow on all of us a talent or two. And this is my gift. This is my talent. I've been given a platform and a voice. I know many may not understand this or they may scoff at me, and that's fine. I'm very self-aware. I'm at the bottom of the entertainment barrel. I, I get it. It doesn't mean I shouldn't use what's been afforded to me. The game has helped me weather some really hard times in life, and this is how I pay the game back. If I can light that spark in one person, just one, the way that spark was lit in me, my man, I feel validated about what I've done here. It's never been about getting paid. Although. I am a capitalist American pig. Who loves money for his hard work. Like anyone else. But I'm not driven by money. I'm driven by you fans. And the future of the sport. Long after I'm gone. 
I'm honored to be your weekly gatekeeper. The fact that anyone would take time out of their day to listen to me pontificate about the seams as I open my life experiences to you is both therapeutic and rewarding for me in its own right. I'm a better person because of this audience. I'm a better father, a better friend because of you listeners. I'm grounded, focused, humbled because of this audience. I owe you guys and the game my very best week in and week out. And that's the why of my goal. And that's what I will do until I can't do it anymore. Preach the gospel of baseball to the world. It's truly, truly my purpose in life. And my reason for talking about family out of the gate this week is threefold. Number one, I consider you, the audience, my family. I know podcasts and radio guys say this shit all the time, but I really do. Maybe I'm deluding myself. Maybe baseball really is a dying sport. I mean, my brother, who loves football and the NBA, I mean, for real, he is as strong on those sports as I am in the seams. He got a sports memory like a steel vault. It's amazing. Well, I just found out a couple of days ago, he has no idea who Shohei Otani is. I mean, how is that even fucking possible? I would think just by accident, all that ESPN he watches, they might show a highlight in the middle of their scary NBA and NFL talk there of the best player on the planet. And my brother of Japanese descent has no clue about show. I mean, look, maybe I'm wrong here about the viability of this game's future. But, to be fair, he could probably name some Eastern European NBA player with no vowels on their jersey, and I would have a little interest or care for that player. But, at the same time, I still know who Giannis and Curry are, and I watch absolutely zero NBA. In fact, let me tell you guys a little secret. I used to follow all these sports, even horse racing. And now, I don't waste my time. I watch, cover, and research only baseball now. I just don't have time for anything else. I catch a Raven game if it's playing here, but if it's not available, then so what? I get paid to cover baseball. I need to be on point for you guys. I never want to let you down. I have nightmares of me forgetting everything I've learned and continue to learn about this game. And in this nightmare, I'm exposed to you as a fraud. It it, it terrifies me. Week in, week out, all I'm going to give you is the best that I got. And my point is, you guys understand me. And I understand you. Even my own biological family doesn't get me. But you do. Again, maybe the sport is dying. I have very little interaction with hardcore baseball fans where I live in Pauley's Island, South Carolina. I used to walk around and talk about baseball to myself for many years. And then I found you guys. And I began to think, you know, maybe the sport is healthier than people think. We speak the same language. You may not agree with me or I may not agree with you, but it's okay because if you're listening to this right now, we have a unique bond. We love this game. We both have that spark. I would hope. Number two, I'm so grateful for my Aunt Celeste taking me to my first game. It is a memory I will take with me until the day I come out of the cornfield to play catch with Moonlight Graham. I'm grateful 
from my Uncle David and my grandfather for teaching me the game. And I'm sure that many of you probably have the same amazing family connection between you and this game of baseball. Someone handed this gift to you as a birthright. By all means, send me a line about your connection to the game and how it came to pass. But now it's our responsibility. Well, it's certainly mine at my advanced age to preserve the game for the future, to tell the stories, put it on audio for a future posterity. And I like to call it pay it forward. And the third reason I started off with my family aspect is because it has a lot to do with this week's topic here at Backwards K Pod. Uh, this guy comes from a real baseball family with talented athletes all around him. And though they never achieved the heights of their little brother, all the little bro ever wanted to, to do in life was stack up against his big brothers. So, I see the catcher is ready to come down as the pitcher looks ready to go. Um, if I could, I'd like to clear this platform. Please say your goodbyes to your loved ones. I'm calling all aboard. As we load up the BKP time travel choo-choo. I'm going to set our date and destination for May 15th, 1953, Glendale, West Virginia, for the birth of sheer royalty. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seamheads of all ages, Backwards K-Pod proudly presents this week's topic, George Brett. And few players, especially today in the age of ridiculous, high-priced free agent salaries and the economic disparity between the haves and the have-nots. Few players are synonymous with one team the way George Brett and the Kansas City Royals are. And as I begin this, I am apt to wonder, what if Brett played in today's game? Certainly, he would have to be compensated on the same level as a, you know, a Nolan Arenado or a Manny Machado, right? I mean, how does that look? KC would almost assuredly not be able to pay a salary that monstrous of a deal today. Would his renowned loyalty to his team and city been able to withstand the allure of the stupid money he would have been offered today in free agency? The amiable, self-deprecating, sometimes volatile, and combative Brett, he never saw himself greater than the team that he loved. He was this classic, throwback, old-school player that I've always adored and admired. And the 70s and 80s, were, you know, just ripe with those type, type of cats. Uh, he preferred pine tar to batting gloves. You could always see him at third base with his luscious blonde locks flowing behind his lid with a huge wad of chewing tobacco bulging out his left cheek. 54 years later, he is still the only ball player to represent the Royals in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Although, I do expect catcher Salvatore Perez to join him within the next decade. And I also think Zach Greinke has a shot as well. And for me, I consider him a royal. Even though, you know, he had success 
in a few different spots, most notably with Houston. And I started out this week with the theme of family for a reason. George was the youngest of four boys who all wound up playing professional baseball. The oldest brother, John, got as far as Class A playing for the Waterloo, Iowa team in the Midwest League. Bobby Brett, his third oldest sibling, played a year of minor league ball in 1972 before moving on to become a successful real estate developer. The brother who showed the most promise and was the real baseball star of the family while George was a kid was the second oldest brother, Ken Brett whom the family has always lovingly called Kemmer. And Kemmer would pitch for 14 seasons in the majors with 10 different teams. His major league debut came on September 27, 1967 with the Boston Red Sox when he comes out of the bully to pitch two innings and a 6 to nothing loss versus the Cleveland Indians. Two weeks later, the 19-year-old would replace Sparky Lyle on the postseason roster, and he would become the youngest player to appear in a World Series game when he threw one and a third of scoreless ball and two relief appearances. In the stands during that season, cheering him on was his parents, his high school baseball coach, and his siblings, the loudest of which was the 14-year-old brother, George, who adored all of his brothers and was Kemmer's biggest fan. In 1973, while pitching for the Phillies, Hammer and Hank Aaron hit a 700 home run off of Kemmer. A year later, as the lone representative of the 1974 Pittsburgh Pirates, he was the winning pitcher in the All-Star Game. Ken Brett had a pitching career that was plagued by arm problems. You know, this is pre-Tommy John surgery. But he was also a fantastic hitter. In 1973, he set a record by dropping Dong in four consecutive pitching starts. A record that still stands. So, eat your heart out, Otani. To my brothers. You know, sometimes I wonder why all this has happened to me and not you. All I ever wanted to do was be as good as you. Right now, I wish it was one of you, believe me. But I know the respect you all have for the game. And I know how hard, I know you know how hard it really is to play. So thank you for all your support. That's just very touching to me, the way, you know, brothers look out for each other. I know, I know what it's like to just, you know... 
just totally love your brother. And, you know, there he is, you know, all his vulnerabilities on display. On October 3rd, he finally does get to play with his lifelong number one fan, his little brother George, in his final major league appearance. An 8-4 Royals loss to the A's in Royal Stadium that saw George homer off of A's starter Rick Langford in the bottom of the sixth. This is uh, quite a you know an interesting relationship that George had. You know he, he never you know all these guys worked harder at it. They were better athletes than him when he was a kid, and he never really really quite understood why he propelled himself to heights that were higher than his brothers, who were much better than him. The Brett boys grew up in El Segundo, California. John, Ken, and Bobby were born in Brooklyn, New York, and George was uh, George was born seventy years ago yesterday in Glendale, West Virginia, before the unit moved to Cali when he was two years old. Their father, Jack Brett, was born and raised in New York City, and he was a huge Yankees fan growing up. He came from good stock as his father worked on Wall Street, but Jack would drop out of high school to work at a factory as a teenager. At 18 years old, he enlists in the U.S. Army and heads to Europe to fight Nazis. His tour of duty comes to an end when he is shot in the leg in France. And upon his return to the States, he attends Pace College in New York City, where he earns a degree in business administration. He worked as an accountant for Mattel Toys. In 1945, he is smitten by Ethel Hansen, and they marry. And George has said on many occasions that his parents' marriage was never really good during his lifetime. There was a lot of arguing, a lot of fighting. His mother, Ethel, a bookkeeper by trade, was very loving and nurturing, while his father was a disciplinarian. It was often George who felt the full weight of his father's rigid ways, as many perceived the youngest Brett to be lazy and lacking motivation. While his brothers were applying themselves to athletics and academics, George loved the salt life, bumming around Redondo Beach more than playing baseball. George often wistfully opines that if it were not for being blessed with a baseball skill set, he would have surely ended up tending bar or as a construction worker. And like his bros before him, Joe begins his Little League career as a seven-year-old at the rec park in El Segundo. And as a child, his favorites were Mickey Mantle, Carl Yastrzemski, and Brooks Robinson. By the ninth grade, Brent stands at an unimpressive 5'9 and weighs 109 pounds soaking wet. Initially, the JV coach Dave Reed wanted to cut the young Brent, but he was overruled by varsity coach John Stevenson, who had coached his brothers back in the day. As it turned out, George broke his wrist and had to sit out his freshman year of high school. So, over the next two years, George begins to mature and fill out. And football was actually his first love as he was QB1 for the high school team. But George had the propensity to throw INTs and he was moved to wide receiver his senior year. Ironically, as a high school baseball player, he really didn't quite measure up to the three Brett siblings before him, especially Kemmer, who was already playing for the Red Sox. 
Brett was also overshadowed by his teammate, Southpaw pitcher Scott McGregor, who had a 13-year career with the Orioles. Originally, Brett was penciled in as a third baseman, but he was moved to short in his junior year. He threw right-handed, batted left, and he mimicked a Yaz-like stance at the dish. He had such a penchant for being clutch, and he had a flair for the dramatic, that his teammates nicked him, nicknamed him Mr. Drama. By Brent's senior year, 1971, the El Segundo Eagles dismantled the California Interscholastic Federation with a 33-2 record and won the CIF championship with what is still regarded to this day as one of the finest high school baseball teams to ever play in Cali. Six players, including Brett, were drafted by Major League Clubs, yet George was never offered one college scholarship, which, you know, I find that to be amazing. One of the greatest third basemen to play the hot corner was drafted by the MLB, but didn't receive a scholarship offer. I mean, that's nuts. Brett carried a little baby fat around his midsection going into the draft, which caused many scouts to pass on him. There were even scouts inside the Royals organization scouting department who were very skeptical of George's chances. However, scouts Tom Perrick, Rosie Gilhausen, they saw Brett as this high-ceiling diamond in the rough. It was Gilhausen who vociferously pleaded the case for George Brett in the Royals' war room on draft night. When Gilhausen looked at George, he saw a player with an impactful skill set, but he was mostly impressed by the intangibles. He saw Brett as a complete player because of his instincts, his aggression, and he was equally impressed by his overall desire. Three things that you know you just can't measure or quantify. Gilhausen and Royals owner Lou Gorman were tight friends who served in the Navy together, and Gorman is eventually swayed by Rosie's passion for George. The Kansas City Royals would select George Brett with the fifth pick of the second round of the 1971 Amateur Baseball Draft. So Brett shows up to his first pro team on June 5th, 1971. The Billings Mustangs in Montana. Rookie uh, Rookie level Pioneer League. He shows up in flip-flops, shorts, and a white beater. And manager Gary Blaylock politely insists he wear uh, proper baseball gear from here on out. It was there where George was converted to third base. He would bat 294, five home runs and 44 RBIs in a shortened first year. He was then sent to Sarasota for some winter ball instruction league. And was promoted to San Jose Class A California League for the 1972 season. In June of that year, his brother Bobby is signed by Kansas City and they become teammates. His brother would play 19 games for the Bees before calling it a career. George would cap off his first promotion with a 274 average, 10 dongs, and a team leading 68 ribs. George gets an invite to Major League Camp Spring Training, Fort Myers, Florida, in March of 1973. He was among the first cuts of that spring training, so the experience it didn't last long. He was then sent to play for the Omaha Royals of the American Association, AAA League. 
He made the uh, league all-star team, and he finished with a two sixty-four batting average, eight home runs, and 64 RBI before being called up to Kansas City. On August 2nd, 1973, George Brett made his Major League Baseball debut, filling in for the injured Paul Shaw. The Royals were taking on the White Sox at Old Comiskey in South Chicago. In his first at-bat, he lined out the pitcher Stan Bonson. The second time up, he records his first MLB hit with a broken bat blue single to left field. He would be played sparingly for Kansas City down the stretch. He finished the season with a 125 average. The Royals as a team, they finished 88-74, their best record as a franchise to that point, six games behind the eventual world champion Oakland A's, who were on course to winning the second of their 3 P championships in 1973. Going into the 1974 season, Royal skipper Jack McKeon wasn't a positive reinforcement for George, as the manager was not, o- not overly thrilled with the play of Brett. He sends the youngster back to Omaha in favor of Shaw, despite the 30 errors he committed in 1973. On April 30th, 1974, the Royals deal Shaw to the California Angels for outfielder Richie Scheinblum. Everyday second baseman Frank White filled in at third for a few games before Brett was recalled. George struggled upon his promotion, both offensively and defensively. There was nothing about him that signaled he would become one of the all-time great third basemen, other than those intangibles that Scout Gilhausen had preached on draft night. Going into the All-Star break, George is struggling to go over the Mendoza line. He realizes he is vulnerable to being sent down again, so he and batting coach Charlie Lau began working out daily to fix his swing. And Charlie was tough on George. One day, a Brett blows off batting practice with Coach Lau, and the irate coach spent the week calling him Mullethead. He could see the potential, working with him every day, and it pissed him off to see George's complacency rear its ugly head when so much progress had been made. From then on out, Brett never missed a session with Charlie ever again. Under his tutelage, Brett was stroking 292 with three games left in the season when Jack McKeon unexpectedly fires Lau. Brett would collect just one hit in those final three games, and the average finished at 285. The 1975 season was one of evolution and transformation for George Brett. It begins with him dropping his number 25 for his more familiar number 5, He made the switch to pay homage to his childhood hero, Orioles third baseman, Brooks Robinson. And 96 games into the season, they replaced Skipper McKeon with the White Rat, Whitney uh, Whitey Herzog. One of the first things that Whitey does is rehire Lau as the batting coach. So, with his rebranding complete with his new uniform number and having hitting guru Charlie Lau back by his side, George Brett breaks out like a monster. He leads the American League in hits with 195, triples with 13, and a 3-0 average to boot. The Royals as a team, they posted their best record ever, 91-71, 20 games over 500. 
but were still merely spectators to the pre-wildcourt postseasons as the Oakland A's won their fifth consecutive AL West title. When A's owner Charlie O. Finley abandoned Kansas City before the 1968 season in favor of Oakland, the majority of KC fans were ambivalent about the move. The team never finished above 500 in the 13 years they called Kansas City home. But it still had to be demoralizing to see the Athletics finish over 500 in their inaugural season by the Bay. And the animosity, it only grew from there like a bitter divorce as the KC baseball fans sat by and watched the A's become a dynastic three-peat club. But fortune would smile on the Royals in 1976 when free agency broke out in baseball. And the miserly, frugal Finley began selling off parts from his dynasty A's team. Time that in conjunction with the plethora of talent the Royals are now bringing through their minor league pipeline. And the baseball universe is on tilt as Kansas City is set to take their place on the throne as true AL West baseball royalty. And leading the way is George Brett, who is now beginning to capture the attention of fans and rivals alike. From day one in 1976, George begins to establish his legacy. May 8th to the 13th, he collected at least three hits in six consecutive games to tie a major league record. The Royals claimed first place in the West by a half game on May 19th, and they never relinquished the throne. By August 6th, they are true masters of their domain with a 12-game lead over Oakland. And during an extra inning affair with Cleveland on August 17th at Royal Stadium, Brett uses those intangibles of passion, aggression, and instincts to steal home for a walk-off win. Now, they did sputter a little after that game. They went 18-27 and to the finish line, but... They were still good enough to finally capture the crown over Oakland by two and a half games. The 1976 Royals season did finish with some controversy. The last game was marred in, in this controversy when Brent edged out teammate and friend Hal McCray for the batting title. With KC trailing the Twins 5-2 on the last day of the season, Brent comes up to bat in the bottom of the ninth with one out and nobody on. And he lofted what looked to be a routine pop-out to left fielder, which many Royal fans to this day acknowledged probably should have been caught by Minnesota left fielder Steve Bride. Instead, Bride misplays the ball so horrifically that Brett scores on an inside-the-park home run to win the batting title. McCray was incensed by the lackadaisical play of Bride and accuses him of being a racist. In spite of his anger, he held no ill will against his teammate and true friend, and told George not to be silly when he offered to share his title. Now, the team would go on to compartmentalize the controversy and set their sights on facing the New York Yankees in the 1976 ALCS. The first of what would become many battles for American League supremacy during the next six years. Brett had an inauspicious beginning to his postseason career when his two errors in the very first inning of Game 1 led to two unearned runs as Kansas City fell to the Yankees 4-1. to 
But the Royals would rebound from that loss and force the series into a Game 5 winner-take-all situation. In that game, Brett shows a glimpse of his future as a Yankee destroyer of worlds when he belts a three-run homer to tie the game 6-6 in the top of the eighth inning in the house that Ruth built. That home run is often forgotten as that game had an even more indelible moment when Chris Chambliss, the first baseman of the Yankees, hit a game-winning walk-off solo shot and the Knights to propel the Bombers to the World Series for the first time in 12 years. And folks, I think this is where I'm going to take a break. I'm loving the story and the vibe, and it's about to pick up as the Yankees-Royals rivalry is set to become one of the most compelling rivalries in all of baseball. So, let me replenish with some fluids, get my thoughts together on where I go from here in this career. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure most of you can hear the Lord's song Royal playing under me. Most of you know this song was actually written about George. Well, you know, with George as an inspirational muse. Lords is not a baseball fan. Never saw Brett play. Really had no idea about anything that had to do with him. But one day she sees a photo of George Brett in his beautiful powder blues with the, you know, that elegant white royal spot across his chest. And he's signing baseballs for, for what looks like, you know, a hundred kids with their hands held out to him. And she loved the photo so much it inspired her. And eventually she learned who Brett was. Crazy story. So you see how George has had an impact on pop culture. He also appears during the third season of Brock Meyer. Okay, Seams Heads. Give me a couple minutes. And when I return, I'll bring you Acts 2 and 3 of George's life. BRB, you freaks. Howdy, y'all. This is Big Tex, Gage Geener, executive producer of Backwards k Pop. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish boil. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the Fish and Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap, only to touch my eyes half hour later, and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no base spices. Well, we also have a hand cleaner, specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. 
crushing big bowls of shellfish, or fishing on the banks of your favorite river, while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summertime shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning. Crawfishhandcleaner.com I remember in 1980, I knew I was going to get a hit. I knew I had a 30-game hitting streak, and and I knew that first at bat I was going to get hit, get a hit every every time up, and probably 60% of the time I did. But those other 40, I hit the ball awfully hard. You know, it's just a matter of them being in the right spot. Um, uh, when uh, when I w- when I went over the 400 mark with six weeks to go in the season, there was a big media rush. Everybody came rushing into my locker after the game. Um, do you think you can hit 400? Do you think you can hit 400? I mean, from 50, 60 microphones and newspaper people. And, and I'm going, hey, that's stupid. I have six weeks to go in the season. I'm not even going to think about it. And I didn't. I, mean, I, I laughed at their faces. Well, for, for the next month, I was still over 400. Now, after talking about it and talking about it for, for a month and with only two weeks to go in the season, I made one mistake. I went out and tried to hit 400 rather than, rather than just going out there and, and, and playing their little game. That's when I needed Dr. Harrison to call me. He should have called me then and said, George, what were you doing the last month? Keep it up. Don't change. And, and I really let the pressure get to me, I think, where before it never did. It didn't matter if we won the game. We had a 20-game lead on the second-place team with two weeks to go. So it really didn't matter. So I, sh- I should have been able to focus better. And um, I remember in 1981 when I went to spring training, I said, okay, now I'm prepared for it to happen. Now I'm going to go out and hit 400 because I'll know how to react a little bit better in the situation. Well, I, I hit 89 points lower, but I did hit over 300. I hit 301. And it was a struggle that last week to hit 300. But I was just able to, you know, put everything aside and go out there and focus, basically, on my task. And, and um, even though I hit 89 points lower, everybody said I had a bad year. I was very pleased with it. Before I broke, 
I was recounting the story of Royals icon George Brent and his life. He's born in West Virginia. His family moves to El Segundo, California when he is two. His brothers are baseball studs. And while George is very gifted as a child, he doesn't quite have the drive that they do until he gets in high school. He wins a state title in high school along with former MLB pitcher Scott McGregor on what is considered by many as one of the greatest California high school baseball teams ever. He's still kind of overlooked as six players, including George, would be drafted by an MLB team, but he is the only one of the six to not be offered a college scholarship. He makes his climb to the ranks. He gets called up by the big club for good in 1974. The team is getting better and better. The A's dynasty ends because of free agency. And the Royals, led by their best player, finally wrest control of the West from Oakland. They go to the postseason for the first time in 1976. But they fall short to the growing rival New York Yankees when first baseman Chris Chandless ends the Royals' postseason dreams with a ninth inning solo blast. So, even though the Royals come up short in the 1976 ALCS, they would continue to dominate the ALS by appearing in six of the next nine postseasons. It should be noted that this coincides with George's first All-Star Game selection, the first of 13 consecutive showings in the Midsummer Classic. And once the dust cleared from the incredible 1976 season, George would be voted the runner-up to Yankees catcher Thurman Munson for AL MVP honors. The 1977 ALCS was a rematch from the year before. In the deciding Game 5, Brett hits an RBI triple in the first inning. As he's finishing his slide in the third base, Craig Nettles inexplicably kicks him in the face. So, Brett immediately gets up and punches Nettles right in his fucking dick lickers, and rightfully so. The announcers, you know, they try to make, like, George slid in the third base too aggressive, which is horseshit. After the bench-clearing brawl is quelled and order is restored... Both players were allowed to continue play, which, you know, that ain't going to happen in today's game. With the Yankees down 3-2 to two in the ninth, New York would score three unanswered runs to snatch the pennant once again from Kansas City in their final inning for the second year in a row. And I got some sound here from that Nettles-Brent incident. Let's check it out. That ball's going to be over the head of Rivers, maybe. No, it's going to be over the Rivers' head. Brett went in hard, and both teams are out on the field. Brett went in hard at Nettles, and Nettles kicked him, and that's when the fight started. Billy Martin right in the middle trying to break it up. But the Royals lead one to nothing. A triple into right center field by George Brett. I think Gidry uh, Scooter got in the middle of that, and he decided he'd better come out of it. That's for sure. And they got Pontek out of there, too, as you can see. Billy Martin with Pontek. What's that? It kind of surprised me. Is uh, 
Brett came in hard and tried to knock the ball out of uh, Nettles' hands and then came up swinging. Well, when it's all over, if nobody gets thrown out, Brett will be at third base and there'll be one out and the Royals will have a one-to-nothing lead. Well, Gidry was right in the middle of that, as you mentioned, Bill. Well, he got out of there. I think one of the Yankees got him out of there, Phil, because they don't. that's the one guy they don't want to lose. You don't want to lose your starting pitcher. Tell you, Mickey misjudged that ball. That's about the first ball that he's misplayed in this whole series. Well, when, he, when it was hit, Phil, I thought it would be over his head, but, you know, you can not You can never say that with River. No. He put on a burst of speed and just couldn't get to the ball. Well, Herzog now talking to Brett. And evidently, uh, Brett and Nettles will stay in the ballgame. So, with the rivalry now between these two clubs firmly solidified, the 1978 season again sees the Royals and Yankees in yet another ALCS Championship Series. This time, the Royals only won one game in the best of five series. But, Brett did provide some magic in Game 3 when he dropped Dong three times on Catfish Hunter's lips. But it was of little consolation to George as Kansas City lost that game 6-5. to five. Hitting coach Charlie Lau was fired again. And he was quickly scooped up by the Yankees. Brett began the 1979 season with a broken right thumb. He suffered in a pickup game of basketball in an off-season charity. Without his security blanket in Lau and nursing that sore thumb, Brett started the season slow. But he would finish with a league leading 212 hits, 20 triples, and a 329 average, which was second to only Fred Lynn's 333. And despite the superlative play of George... Kansas City would miss the playoffs for the first time in four years. Whitey Herzog has shown the door, as well as all of his coaches. Kansas City had won three divisional titles under Whitey, but had failed to get past New York in the ALCS. Entering that 1980 season, the Royals now had Jim Fry at the helm. Fry had been a coach for the Orioles and Earl Weaver for 10 years. Within days of the Orioles' meltdown versus the Pirates in the 1979 World Series, the Royals hired him to take over for Whitey. And during that season, George would capture the imagination of the baseball universe within an unlikely pursuit of a 400 batting average. I was nine years old, and I was actually gripped by his chase. All my young life, I was told how Ted Williams was the last guy to accomplish the feat in 1941 and that no one will ever do it again. Well, for six months, I truly believed George was going to do it. During a June 10th contest versus Cleveland, George tore a ligament in his right foot while trying to steal second. At the time, he's batting 337 and he doesn't return until July 10th. Beginning on July 18th, he starts a 30-game hitting streak that would launch him over the 400 threshold. On August 17th, he goes 4 for 4 versus the Blue Jays. His fourth hit, a bases-clearing double in the eighth inning off of hurler Mike Barlow. 
put him over the top as he stood at second base in old exhibition stadium. Brett tipped his cap to the Jays fans who were showing their respect. Behind Brett, the scoreboard flashed 401. I mean, it's August, folks. He's batting 401. This is legitimate. I'll never forget staring at that picture of Brett at second base uh, in the next day's Baltimore Sun newspaper. Well, wasn't a doubt in my progressive mind he was going to do it. His average had hovered around 400 for over a month. On September, he takes the collar. Over four versus the A's, and his average dips to 395. And you heard it when we were coming back from the break. Uh, after all the weeks of the media hounding him and George pretty much laughing off the prospect of hitting 400, the pressure did begin to weigh on him. Eventually, his average would fall to 390 to close out the 1980 campaign and remains the closest anyone has come to hitting 400 since Teddy Ballgame's amazing 1941 season. Uh, as well as winning the batting title, Brett's slash of 390, 454, 664 was tops in all of baseball. And listen to this stat I'm about to put in your brain. In 1980, George Brett hits 24 home runs and only strikes out 22 times and 515 plate appearances. One of the best hitting seasons I've ever seen. More home runs than strikeouts, folks. Now wrap your cerebellum around that. In fact, let's take a look at those insane 1980 stats a little. His 9.4 war in 1980 was the best in all of baseball. 117 games, 515 plate appearances, 175 hits, 87 runs, 33 doubles, 9 triples, 24 home runs, 118 RBI, 15 stolen bases, 6 times caught, 22 strikeouts, 58 walks, 298, uh, 298 total bases. And an unreal slash of 390, 454, 664, and a 1.118 OPS. And that also coincides with a league leading 203 OPS plus. Absolutely sick numbers. I mean, I just had to look at them. That slash line is outrageous. Kansas City clinched the West by 14 games over Oakland, and for the fourth time in five years, they would meet their AL East nemesis, New York Yankees. The Royals win the first two games, leaving them one shy of exercising the Yankee demons from their psyche. Game three featured one of those indelible baseball moments. With the Royals tra- trailing 2-1 to one in the top of the seventh, Yankee starters set the first two Royals down before surrendering a double to speedy center fielder Willie Wilson. The Yanks go to the bully for Hall of Famer Goose Gossage, who promptly gives up a single to shortstop UL Washington. So, with two out, a man on first and third, Brent puts a Gossage fastball in the left field upper tank to put the Royals ahead 4-2 to stay and ensuring Kansas City of their first World Series appearance. The Royals faced Filthy, who was also vying for their first world title. The first two games were won by the Phils in the the vet. In the second game, Brett began to feel severe pain after 
collecting a walk and two singles, he has to be taken out of the game. On the way back to Royal Stadium for Game 3, Brett checked himself into St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City for minor hemorrhoid surgery. And by this time, it is national news and fodder for the late night talk show Josie. With Game 3 set to begin, Brett finds the grit to suit up just hours after surgery. In his first at bat, he deposits a Dick Ruthman pitch into the right field stands for a home run. That gave the Royals a one nothing lead. A lead they would hold in that Game 3. But alas, our heroes come up just short as KC falls to filthy in six games. With his near successful pursuit of 400, his romantic tryst with a beauty pageant contestant, and his first World Series appearance under his belt, as well as, you know, the embarrassing hemorrhoid story, George Brett became a household name. The days of just hanging out with teammates Jamie Quirk and Clint Hurdle in the bars of Westport and Country Club Plaza in anonymity are over. A player strike in 1981 cuts the season in two halves. Manager Jim Fry was fired after a 10-10 start to the second half and was replaced by former Yankee skipper Dick Hauser. Under his watch, the Royals went 20-10 to finish the second half with a 30-23 record to earn a playoff berth. They would be swept, however, in the ALDS by the Oakland A's. The Royals would miss the postseason in 1982 and 1983 as George missed 57 games between the two seasons with injuries. He still continued to put up big numbers. And even though the Royals weren't as good, George would be the key figure in the next chapter of the Royals-Yankees rivalry. On July 24th, a game in baseball lore, affectionately called the Pine Tar Game. It takes place. With both teams two games back in their respective divisions, the Yankees are winning 4-3, going into the top of the ninth at Yankee Stadium. New York pitcher Dale Murray retires the first two batters before surrendering uh, a UL Washington single. Yankees manager, the late Billy Martin, goes to the bully, brings in Goose to face Brett, and the second pitch of an 0-1 count is a fastball up and in that Brett absolutely tomahawks over the right field wall to give the Royals a 5-4 lead. As Brett is circling the bases, Martin springs out of the Yankees' dugout and begins talking to home plate umpire Tim McClellan, and he's pointing at Brett's bat. And Martin is insisting that Brett has violated Rule 1.10c, which states that no baseball bat should be covered in any substance more than 18 inches from the tip of the handle. After some quiet debate and confusion by the fans and Royals dugout, McClellan measures the bat against the width of the 17-inch wide home plate, and he determines that Brett had indeed used an illegal bat. He pointed the bat at George Brett, sitting in the dugout, gave him the out signal, And all hell broke out in one of the most bizarre, unforgettable baseball moments ever. Brett goes nuclear. He's charging the 6'6", 250-pound McClellan. And George would have to be literally physically restrained by crew chief Joe Brinkman, who 
had Brett in what I would consider like, you know, this half Nelson type headlock. And by now, all the umpires are at home plate holding Brett back while Tim just stares at him. Gaylord Perry grabs the bat and takes off. And I've told his story in perspective on that day. It's in the archives of that Gaylord Perry bear, uh, Gaylord Perry bio. And here, let's see if we got some clips here. Of course, we do with the Twine Tar game, right? Uh oh, uh oh, that's gone. And now the Royals have the one-run lead. George Brett has just homered, and Billy Martin and the Yankees want the bat. Look at Martin. Well, what they're talking about, Frank, is that he's got too much pine tar, and uh, you've got to have a certain amount of distance from the trademark of the bat and the pine tar. And Nettles is leaving the field as if the game is over. Now he's just coming in. I'm not sure. Uh, they might have a legitimate uh, gripe. And the umpires are going to get together. George Brett looking around and wanting to know what's going on. And the umpires are going to get together and talk about this thing. Well, Billy Martin bounced right out I've, of the dugout. I've seen it called before, Frank. You are not allowed to have a substance of any of any kind above the trademark. And I can't tell from here because everybody's huddled around the bat. I cannot tell from here if it's uh, up too far. Now they're both they're off they're feeling it. See, the sifters are some sticky stuff around there. That's Nick Bremigan with the this bat. This is right. going to be an interesting call. Well, Brett isn't sure whether he has a home run yet or not. Now the umpires are going to walk away and talk about this and go over the rules and examine the bat. See where the fine parts in the label, the trademark is. Yeah. See the brown substance there. It does look that's, like it's a. That's fine tar. It looks like it is. Now you are not allowed to have that fine tar up that far on the bat. Billy Martin walking around, uh, waiting for the, uh, which might be an important decision. First time in a long, long Let's time see. I've seen the umpires huddle this long and have a meeting over it. See what's going to happen. They're going to. Now that is the plate umpire, Tim McClellan, with the bat in his hand. Now they're going to measure it across home plate. Well, I, I've never, I've never seen this. I never have either. I don't know what I don't know what they're measuring. They might be going to call George Brett out. Well, he yeah, is. He's, he's out. Yes, sir. He is out. Look at, look at this. Brett is out. And he's demon mad. He is out and having to be forcibly restrained from hitting plate umpire Tim McClellan. And the Yankees have won the ball game four to three. Brett is called out for using an illegal bat or with the illegal substance on the bat. Like I said, I have seen this before, Frank, and uh, Gaylord Perry just took the bat away from a whole plate umpire, Jim McClellan. He's going to take the bat. They're going to take it so they cannot take it into the American League office or wherever they take it to be examined. 
Well, the Yankee security uh, person and uh, one of the umpires quickly are chasing whoever has the bat. Jose Martinez is holding Brett. Bobby, I've never seen this in my life. Well, I've seen players uh, called out for using an illegal bat, uh, but never... Never saw an important hit by a home run and then been called out to put the Royals ahead. George Brett was fighting mad, and uh, whether he has a cause to be mad or not, I don't have any idea. Uh, the umpires made a decision. Bobby, let me say this to you. The fact that they tried to take the bat away and secrete the bat lends credence to the umpire's call in my estimation. And I have no idea what he's even talking about, secrete the bat. I mean, what is he talking about, the bat sweating? I, I don't know what that dude's talking about, but yeah, it was very, very bizarre. When order was restored, the two teams made their way back to the clubhouse with the home run stripped from the books. The Yankees had a 4-3 to victory. However, this ruling didn't sit well with Royals VP of player personnel, John Sherholtz, and he immediately filed a letter of protest for AL President Lee McPhail, who overturned the call on the field. The game was resumed on August 18th to the chagrin of Martin and the Yankees fans. Billy Martin made a mockery of the game by inserting pitcher Ron Guidry in center field and moving left-handed first baseman Don Mattingly to play second base to top off the ninth. Gossage was replaced on the mound by George Frazier. And out of spite, Martin tells Frazier to appeal every base, so he steps off the rubber and he does what he's told. Martin figures, ain't no way in hell these guys can verify the appeals. However, when they did shoot down the appeals, Billy runs out to get an explanation. And it's at that point that crew chief Dave Phillips produced an affidavit signed by the original four umpires confirming that Brent and Washington had indeed touched all the bases. So, a pissed off Billy leaves the field, walks straight to the clubhouse. Frazier would strike out Hal McCray for the innings final out. And Royals closer Dan Quisenberry retired the side in order for the 5-4 KC victory. As for George, he was thrown out of the game for his comical belligerence. He was replaced by Greg Pryor at third. And he would watch the game's conclusion on a TV in a restaurant. During the offseason, the first salvo fired in the 1985 drug trials, Willie Mays, Aikens, Jerry Martin, Willie Wilson, and former Royals hurler, Vada Blue, all pled guilty to cocaine possession. Everyone but Wilson was released from the team. Despite the turmoil, the Royals win the West in 1984, but no one is capable of containing the 1984 Bless You Boys Detroit Tigers, and they are casually swept out of the ALCS. That offseason, George Brett puts in the work. He showed up to camp considerably thinner, went on to finish second in AL MVP voting behind Yankees first baseman Don Mattingly. He set career highs with 30 home runs, and he won his only gold glove of his career. The Royals, as a team, did not run away with the 1985 season. All season long, they and the California Angels would flip-flop and share the AL West lead at different points of the season. KC would clinch the division October 5th with a walk-off win over Oakland. 
and down the stretch, Brett goes 9 for 20 with 5 dongs and 11 RBI as the team finishes 91 and 71 and now waits the challenge of the AL East winning Toronto Blue Jays in the ALCS. The ALCS was now the best of a seven series, and the Jays quickly held a three games to one advantage after winning game four three to one. Royals pitcher Danny Jackson spun a shutout in game five to keep the Royals on life support as they headed to Toronto for game six and seven if necessary. Kansas City notched the series at three with a game six victory that saw George reach base three times and score twice. The decisive game, 7, October 16, 1985. The Royals run away with a 6-2 win for their second AL pennant. George was named ALCS MVP, and he was chomping at the bit to get after the Cardinals in the World Series. And since the Royals and the Cardinals both played their home games on the opposite ends of Missouri... The World Series was dubbed the I-70 Series. The heavily favored cards were managed by Whitey Herzog, Herzog, who instructed his pitching staff not to let George Brett beat you under any circumstances. His staff followed orders for the most part. They held George to uh, one extra base hit, one RBI. He still hit 370 for the series, had an OBP of 452. A talented Royals rotation stymied the Cards' bats as St. Louis batted a paltry 185 during the season. Their OBP was a meager 248, and for all the base-stealing exploits of the season, the Redbirds only managed two stolen bases in five attempts in the 1985 World Series. The Royals also benefited from a blown call by umpire Don Deckinger, who just died last week, may he rest in peace, as well as uh, uncharacteristic fielding miscues by St. Louis that, you know, you know they led the NL during that season with a 983 fielding percentage. And I've covered this 1985 World Series extensively in our Dan Quisenberry and Calvin Stadium shows. You can find those on all platforms in my Vault of Archives if you want to go deeper. And that's the Calpin Stadium show. George Brett tells Brett Saberhagen, when he gets the last batter out of the season, I want to be the first to celebrate you, which is exactly what happened. KC had fallen behind again, three games to one versus St. Louis, but they would rebound to choke out the light-hitting cards, becoming the first team to come back from two, three to one postseason deficits in the same year to win it all. That 1985 season would be the pinnacle of George's legendary career as his game began to slowly fall off after that. He would never reach the postseason ever again. In 1990, the 37-year-old Brett won his third and last batting title with a 329 average. He is the only player in MLB history to win three batting titles in three different decades. In 1992... The conferred bachelor who watched his brother marry later in life decided that was the life for him as well. Well, that would all change when he met Leslie Davenport and marry her at the age of 38. They raised three sons, Jackson, Dylan, and Robin. On Wednesday, September 30th, 1992, George Brett was four hits away from the 3,000-hit milestone. He doubles in the first, singled in the third, singled in the fifth, and in the seventh, he smashes a grounder past second baseman Ken Okerfell's glove for hit number 3,000. The crowd of 17,000 gave him a standing ovation. 
His brother Kemmer was in the Halos broadcast booth calling the game. And his newlywed wife and family were in the stands as he was mobbed by his KC teammates. When play resumed, Greg Jeffries flies out to left field for the second out. And with Mark Mike McFarlane at the dish, an embarrassed Brett is picked off for his base. The umpire who called him out? None other than Tim McClellan. The same umpire who called him out in the Pine Tar game. And how can you not be romantic about baseball? On September 25th, 1994, George, flanked by his wife Leslie, called for a press conference to announce his retirement at the end of the season. Although the 40-year-old was not the same player as he was in his 20s and 30s, he still posted respectable numbers, and the Royals even offered him substantial money to play one more year. But Brett had had enough. He always said he would never play for strictly the cash. That wouldn't be fair to the Royals or their fans, and they deserve better than that. The Royals would retire his number five jersey less than a year after his final game. Since retiring as a player, Brett served in various capacities in the Royals' front office, from hitting coach to VP of baseball operations. He and his brother Bobby formed an investment group that tried unsuccessfully to buy the Royals in 1998. The brothers would eventually purchase several several minor league teams, and George has become quite the uh, philanthropist, raising money to find a cure for Lou Gehrig's disease. And that, boys and girls, is the story of Royals icon, George Brett. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed telling the story. I'll try to be better next week. Now, Before I break out like a bad case of chicken box, let's take a fine-tooth comb through those oh-so-lovely George Brett stats. Let's see, what do we got here? Uh, 21-year career, all with the Kansas City Royals. Born May 15, 1953. That makes him 70-year-old plus one day when this show drops. So, happy birthday, George. We love you. 88.6 wins above replacement, which is the 31, uh, 31st best overall war in the history of the game. 2,707 games played. 11,625 played appearances. 3,154 hits, which is currently the 18th most in Major League Baseball history. 1,583 runs. 665 doubles. The 7th most in the history of the game. 137 triples, 317 home runs, 1,596 ribs. That ranks 38th most. 201 stolen bases, 97 times caught. 908 strikeouts, 1,096 walks. His 5,044 total bases is the 21st most in baseball history. 305, 369, 487, 857 OPS. 135 OPS Plus, 13-time All-Star, 3-time batting title winner, 1976, 1980, and 1990. The only player to win a batting title in three different decades. 1980 AL MVP, 1985 Gold Gloves, three Silver Slugger Awards, 1980, 1985, 1988. In his first year of eligibility, he is elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. That's in 1999 with 98.2% of the votes. 
Backwards K Pod is available on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your shows, or you can go to my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com, to hear this or any of the other bangers I got in my always expanding vault of archives. And speaking of the archives, I was talking a couple weeks ago how shows are, you know, beginning to branch off into each other now as we come in hard for this second season of Backwards K-Pod. And I love it. If you want to go further down the rabbit hole with George Brett, you can check out my shows on the History of Calvin Stadium, the Dan Quisenberry bio, the Gaylord Perry show, as well as the George Steinbrenner show. All of those pods have elements of Brett and the Kansas City Royals in them. I will never charge you for the baseball content I dole out every week. No Patreon, no Twitch, no pay-to-play crowdsourcing. I'm just going to roll up my sleeves, come through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Ken Griffey Jr., baby. If you're on a platform that gives you the opportunity to rate and review my performance, please do so as you see fit. I ain't stirred. All these things, rate and reviews, comments, shares, follows, downloads, it's how I feed the fucking dog. It keeps me relative in the Google search engines, and it enables me to continue doing the thing I love doing most in this world, and that's talk baseball with the beautiful-minded Steve seem heads such as yourself. So, with George Brett in the books, with a backwards K next to it, I can see that topic getting smaller and smaller in the rearview mirror. I now turn my attention to next week's topic, and I chop the head off our baseball hydra, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. Now, I have Josh Gibson and my Volta of Archives already. We'll be doing Satchel Page later in the summer. But next week, I'll be doing a feature on one of the baddest ball players, not only in the Negro Leagues, but also in the history of this game. Some even say the best. Next week, we're going to get down with Martin DeHigo. And I can't wait to tell his amazing story. But look, that's another story. For another pod here at Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. If you want to catch me in the streets, I ain't hard to find. You can email me at uh, backwardskpod at gmail.com. Our show Twitter page is at back underscore K underscore podcast. My personal Twitter page is at jrobbie1. That's J R O B B I E and the number one. Our Instagram page and YouTube channel was Backwards K Pod, but you can always find me hanging out with the fans and the Facebook private group page, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Please visit crawfishhandcleaner.com to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. I love all of you. Thank you for giving me purpose and all the support I could have ever imagined. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch, got their nose in a phone like a bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand told me in our one-on-one interview last year, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day.
See you next week, Seamheads. Peace.